0: It's FAQNYC Off-Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city steps back to take different and deeper looks to some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, and in this episode, I'll be talking with Bradley Tusk. Hello? Hello. Hey, so deep breath. Bradley is among other things the founder, co-founder, and CEO of the venture capital firm Tusk Ventures, the former campaign manager for Mayor Mike Bloomberg. Head of the political consulting firm and uh, other con- and tech consulting that managed uh, Andrew Yang's Merrill campaign after helping Uber run over then Mayor Bill De Blasio, and a philanthropist whose projects include mobile voting. More, he's the owner of PNT Knitwear, a bookstore on the Lower East Side. That, full disclosure, is a supporter of this podcast and where we're recording this episode from its podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community uh, use. And, and, he's also a co-founder of the Gotham Book Prize, and now the author of two books, most recently, his very entertaining first novel, Obvious in Hindsight," about a tech startup looking to launch the first flying car company. So, that's about the near future, but it feels like, right now, given how some of the plot, which is centered on a consulting firm at the intersection of tech and politics, Natch, revolves around the FBI gunning for the mayor of New York after he tries to negotiate a bribe. As we're recording this Monday morning, incidentally, Mayor Eric Adams is on the waterfront for a performative look. He didn't take off in one of personal electric helicopters coming soon, hopefully to a heliport, hopefully not to a crash landing near you. Bradley, thanks for joining us. Let's jump right in. Is it a little uncanny for you to see some of the events in your near-future novel mirrored in New yeah, York City right now. Yeah, I mean, now. it's
1: it's funny. When I started working on this a couple of years ago, one of the reasons I picked Flying Cards was it was a little futuristic and fantastical. Um, and that was, it was fun. And, you know, my day job is legalizing all kinds of technologies. And they're all effectively futuristic by nature. So this one was like, let me pick something that's like even further out. And then from when the time I started writing it until the time it got published, the industry advanced so much that it went from like, isn't this crazy? To literally... As we're sitting here recording this press conference, the mayor of New York State is having uh, his own press conference uh, about flying cars. Do
0: you want to talk a bit about the uh, the the, F- the FBI and yeah, any questions sure. there? On,
1: we're talking about the, the the real FBI or the or the one in the book, the real one. Well, both. All right. So on the on the real one, been thinking about this a decent amount as you, as have you, I'm sure. Um, I, I would say this, which is there has to be a certain bar to indict the sitting mayor of New York City. And, you know, he can indict staff. There are at least not much will change if he indicts staff. So it's not that big a deal. What's, what's, a, what's a big deal is if Adams himself is indicted. Um, and so what are the things in my view that would be valid reasons for indictment and which ones would be not valid or invalid? So personal enrichment, right? So if Eric is caught putting money in his pocket— um, in any way. That clearly is a no-no. Voters care very deeply about that. Um, they tend to not care that much in my experience about campaign finance violations. So it could be cash, but it also could be vacations. He has taken all of these trips to Turkey and other places. And I think he's gone there as official capacity. It's not unusual for a foreign government to subsidize some of those trips, um, but we'll see what, what the actual details of those trips were. So that's number one. Number two would be a straw donor scheme in concert with a foreign government, right? So John Liu did have a straw donor scheme in 2013 and he did not get indicted for it. His campaign treasurer did, but he did not. But that was still with individuals. If you're conspiring with an authoritarian government in Turkey to do this, especially if matching funds came into play, right? So it's one thing to evade contribution limits. It's a problem. I don't think it's an indict the mayor over problem. But if you picked up, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign finance board uh, matching funds, which is taxpayer money, then you've defrauded the taxpayers, right? And then that becomes a real problem. Or the third would be a serious quo. So the, the quo right now that we know of is Adams reached out to the fire commissioner, Daniel Negro, to say, hey, can you get, get make sure that the, the Turkish consulate is open in time? That's not really particularly crazy. I think everyone in politics has sort of called someone for something like that. Adams said, look, it was a Brooklyn construction company doing the work. I'm Brooklyn Borough president. It seems pretty reasonable to me. Now, if if Adams knew that the site was wildly unsafe and he kept leaning on it more and more, maybe you start to get to the line. But I think it's more things like if you can show that the administration to the Turks or whoever has steered contracts, grants, permits, things like that in return for campaign contributions or personal enrichment, then you clearly have a problem. But I think it's got to be one of those three things because if you think about the cost of it, these are the two scenarios. The first would be okay, they indict Eric. He steps down. So Jamani Williams becomes mayor. So that's the second mayor. We have a special election in three days. Let's assume Jamani doesn't win. Now we have a third mayor. And then because we're coming up on 25, we're going to have the regular election. So we could end up easily with, with four mayors in two years. That is wildly disruptive to the city. Or more likely, if you look at sort of the examples of Bob Menendez or Donald Trump, if Eric got indicted for something that didn't feel really strong, like he made a call about a certificate of occupancy, he's not going to resign. And in which case you have a sitting mayor under indictment running the city. Yes, Kathy Hochul would have the legal power to act on this. But she's not going to jeopardize her 26th reelection and the black base to do that by removing Adams. And so we either have a mayor governing under indictment or as many as four mayors in a two-year cycle, which, again, if the mayor is guilty of real corruption, they should still move forward. But if it's ticky-tack or routine stuff, they should not.
0: So I got lots of thoughts there. But let's bring this to the book for a minute. Okay. So there is a mayor in this book who I would venture – I, I think he's transformed, I'm guessing, in the course of your writing this, but started off with uh with elements of He was the Blasio,
1: Blasio Blas. when I started. Do you, you know who he kind of was by the end? In my mind, uh Daley. So, because it's funny when when I write the dialogue for these characters, I hear them speaking in my head. And I worked with Daly when I was a deputy governor of Illinois. He was the he was the mayor of Chicago, and so I got to know him, you know, reasonably well. And I actually liked Daly quite a bit, um, though he had his own corruption issues as well. But uh, in a way, Joe Navarro, who's the mayor in this book is a lot smarter than Bill De Blasio was, uh, and struck me more online, sort of intellectually, with with Rich Daly.
0: Nonetheless, uh, Navarro, who's had complicated relationships with uh, with Uber yep. and with the Medallion owners, yep. uh, flying cars are coming. There's a mm-hmm. consultant who who maybe is a shadier version of a Bradley Tusk, perhaps, is yep. playing both sides. Yes. of this deal uh, in, in part for, I think, the uh, the, the, the challenge or, or the, the adrenaline of doing it a- And
1: so. the money. So yeah. Nick Denevito is the head of a political consulting firm, fictional called Firewall, which also happens to be the name of my podcast. Um, and Nick uh, has, has a gambling pro- problem, but it's not your typical gambling problem. He invests in risky early-stage tech startups, but he doesn't really have the professionalism to do it. So it's like if I had never like in my real life venture fund, my partner Jordan Knopf was running Blackstone's internal venture fund before we got together. If I didn't have Jordan and the whole infrastructure that we've built, and I was just investing people's money or my own money in startups, that's what it would be like, right? Because we have you know all of the infrastructure in place. We're a real fund with, with real returns. Uh, but if you're just wildly betting on things, it's really no different than betting on horses or sports or poker or anything else. Um, So Nick falls deep in debt. Uh, He borrows money as one might in those situations. The people who he borrowed money from um, are not particularly forgiving when it comes to not paying the loans back. Um, And he has to choose between having his kneecaps in one piece or um, coming up with another way to generate money. And uh, that means playing two sides of the campaign off each other. Um, And that's where all the excitement starts in this novel.
0: So with the medallion owner, there's this great description you have of his place, Turgenev, in an infamous Russian nightclub in the heart of Brighton Beach. Um, Eastern black chic from a distance is all crystal, red carpeting, copious gold leaf, not unlike most casinos in Atlantic City. Look a little closer. It's all flimsy and crumbling, which works perfectly. Uh, the decor brings the locals in and gives them the illusion of luxury, and it keeps people from Manhattan out. As this uh, every borough against Manhattan camaraderie still prevails. So I I feel like there's a lot of.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that world a little bit because my my dad's from Russia. He's from Tashkent. And uh, when I was a kid, we lived in Sheepshead Bay. We eventually moved out to Long Island, but most of the family remained in, in Brighton and Marine Park and Sheepshead Bay. And so I've been to so many weddings in these kinds of places. And then when you work in New York City politics, you know, look, that was a constituency that mattered to us in the 09 campaign. And Mike and I spent time out there, you know, campaigning and soliciting votes and went to, you know, places like that as well. And so, yeah, it was, it was a place that I, fe- I felt like I understood pretty well.
0: It's a, it's, it's a New York I recognized. Um, just, you know, growing up here and those sorts of places that are big event venues
1: and are also totally unwelcoming. All all, all over the city. I mean, or you know what's even funnier? There was um, a really famous uh, fancy restaurant on like 10th Avenue, 15th Street, Del Posto, I think it was called, something like that, right? And um, it was Mario Batali or someone like that, very expensive. And I remember going there and saying, this is Russo's on the Bay." Like, now, I'm sure I was the literally only person in the room that had ever been to both Del Posto and Roosters on the Bay. Pause for one second for listeners who don't know. Rooster on the Bay is like the quintessential kind of catering hall for political events, like the PBA annual benefit. That's the kind of place that's at Rooster on the Bay. It's in Howard Beach, I think. And
0: um, And Eric Adams has done a whole number of events there. It's shown up in recent press coverage.
1: For sure. For sure. Um, So... What was funny is this place that everyone's ooing and aahing about, and look, I am sure everything at Del Posto was fancier and more expensive versions of whatever I was in Howard Beach, but I loved it because it was like these people are at effectively what political operas are at all the time, and they don't even realize it. Just one
0: more little bit from the, uh, the book I wanted to read. This is right when the FBI gets involved um, and... It's so like a third of the way through the book. It's sort of at the end of the, the first section. They're, they're, what is it? A kosher Mexican...
1: Kosher Korean Mexican food truck.
0: Kosher Korean Mexican food truck. As one does. There's a fantastic uh, actual um, uh, uh, Korean Afghan place by me that is not an FBI trap. Well, as far as we know. Yeah, as far as we know. It, it's, it's uh, They married each other and <laughs> like the food. Um, but, you know, it, it's... Um, the two agents are talking and about how they came into the mayor. And one of them's asking the other, uh, "How exactly do we know this? Um, same as most investigations, came up in the middle of something completely different. Usually, it goes nowhere, but sometimes it does. And when that happens, we jump in. Yeah. And that resonated with me just because I've been following all of these little things involving straw donors and yep. phone taps yep. and investigations that maybe people weren't even looking for Eric Adams, but you've got people who are." cheating, allegedly, the uh, WBME program, right, uh, for contracts uh, for for, uh, women and minorities. And uh, this guy's like, you pay me a cut and I'll pretend to be your partner so you can get that money. And then in the course of that, they're like, hey, let's uh, let's bribe Eric Adams. If we give $200, that becomes $1,600. Wouldn't that be awesome? It's like, you know, if you're the Alvin Bragg, who's got complicated interests as the Manhattan prosecutor, it's like, sure. well, well, shit, you
1: have to bring this. Well, put it this way. Once he brought that Trump indictment, mm-hmm. um, that you set the bar pretty low, right? I mean, I'm all for Trump spending the rest of his life in jail, but- uh,
0: We'll talk about this yeah. one, because it, honestly, it's pretty embarrassing.
1: Yeah. So, Al, look, and, and, and I, I've known Alvin for a long time, and I, I like him personally quite a bit, and he's a really smart dude. And by the way, while well, I dinner with with him a couple, maybe a month ago, like- he deeply cares about his job and is trying to do well. I don't necessarily agree with his prosecutorial philosophy, but I don't doubt his intentions for a second.
0: Um, he's been a regular guest on the podcast, by the way, and we, we appreciate him and probably are in some sympathy for what he's trying to do. But I will say that it seems like politically, he ended up in way over his head. And weirdly, after the election, because there were like nine candidates, no one yeah. paid that much attention. And after he wins the primary, and it's just first first place, right? You don't need 50% or anything nope. else. In this big field, suddenly the New York Post notices and there's this holy smokes moment like this guy is going to do all these things in a wave of publicity.
1: Right, for for sure. Um, Yeah, look, and I think that when Alvin indicted Trump, it was great base politics for him, right? Because he became the first prosecutor in American history to criminally indict a former or sitting U.S. president. He indicted the person that everyone on the left hates with – all of their might, um, but it was a little flimsy. It was about the Stormy Daniels payoff and maybe they violated some business record rules. And I think the reason why a lot of people who very much don't want to see Trump back in power were opposed to it, and I wrote my Daily News column about this, it is because Trump has committed so many truly serious crimes, espionage and treason and shit like that that now all of a sudden it's like this just actually kind of proves his point that it's all a giant conspiracy against him. but also and Alvin isn't the one investigating Adams in this case that we're talking about, but now that Al Adams has set the bar pretty low, you know he kind of if 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 another public official does something as bad, which is not that terrible, um I guess he's got to indict.
0: It's weird. Um, Tish James, unlike Alvin, who just said, I can't really talk about this when he was running. Tish James, who's bringing, I think, a stronger but still not terribly impressive case, like something you could get almost every business owner and building owner in Manhattan for, right? But she ran against – she ran saying, I want to get this guy. Yep. And so Trump now is whining. She said she's going to get me. And all these people who know that that's not right, they're sort of rolling their eyes. But I I can't imagine this is going to be the last time we see this play out. It's not.
1: Although I've just been thinking about this over the last week or so, and tell me if you agree, which is it seems like we on the non-Trump side who are in politics are getting this wrong in that there are people who love Donald Trump, fine. There are people who hate Donald Trump, fine. There's a lot of people, and clearly they're telling pollsters, you know, we've seen three polls now come out in the last week that has Trump ahead in pretty much all the swing states. No, I'm for Trump. And the reason why is it's not that they're not aware of how terrible he is. They know he's a criminal. They know he's a liar. They know he's a scumbag. But they remember, or maybe misremember, but either way think that their life was better under his presidency than it has been under Biden. And if – we keep thinking that if we just show them one more horrible thing that Trump did, then they'll suddenly get it and they'll say, I'll never vote for that man again and they support Biden. They're fully aware of the trade-off they're making and they're making it knowingly anyway because they think that the economy was better. You know, inflation certainly was lower. Price of goods were lower. Um, You know, interest rates were lower. Um, And so I think Biden's got to discredit Trump on the merits and on the record and say he was a shitty president. Your life was worse off when he was president your pocketbook will be worse off if he becomes president again as opposed to all of this moral stuff because we keep hoping for some hallelujah moment that's never going to happen. It's like the slogan is
0: democracy dies in darkness, but I I see this pretty similarly and I'm very worried that democracy could die in broad daylight with the guy who's got...
1: Democracy dies on Twitter, yeah.
0: Yeah. And and, and at the polls where, where it's like you say inflation is low, inflation doesn't feel low to me, I'm unhappy about this. You know, you squint and that's a big part
1: of it. Um, Yeah. And by the way, part of the problem is is the semantics aren't working. Like inflation is not low. Inflation is the rate of increase is lower than it was. And that's great. I think the Fed's done a really good job managing this overall. And look, it's a result of putting trillions of dollars into the economy during COVID, which I still think was absolutely necessary. So the trade-off is worthwhile. But yeah, Biden keeps trying to sell a message of like things are great. And there may be Paul Krugman and other statisticians who would back that up. But If people don't feel it in their gut, it doesn't translate into their vote. And I don't think you're going to convince them otherwise. So it's not about getting them to vote for you because they think you're proactively so fantastic. It's got to be that the other guy is even worse. And that's, I think, got to happen on substantive grounds, not moral grounds.
0: So this is one election that's actually outside of, I think, your rules of politics because we're looking at a general election, not a
1: primary here. Yeah, this, this is the only election in the U.S. where turnout is not a problem.
0: So, so a couple very brief lines in your book. At one point early on, it's like we have to make this product so exciting that the political rules of gravity don't apply. Yeah. A little after that, there's a conversation about how th- there's all these policy nerds and nose pickers around. But finally, it's just the political people As it
1: who always matter. is at the end of the
0: day. So, so this is a fictional book, but you have your, your non-fictional rules of politics.
1: Mm-hmm. Which are in the end of this book too, by the way.
0: Yes, at the, uh, which are listed out yep. Ten Commandments style yep. at the end of the book. Is everything just inputs and outputs? Is it too much to expect principles? This goes back it's a little a, to what you said about so,
1: so the underlying thesis, and just for the listeners who probably don't know my background— um, I've worked in city government, right? I worked uh, for Mike Bloomberg City Hall. I ran his mayoral campaign. I worked for Ed Rendell when he was the mayor of Philly. I worked for Henry Stern at the Parks Department for four years.
0: And and you basically were the the shadow governor of the state of Illinois right. while, while fucking st- Golden Blagojevich was well, busy with so other folks.
1: So I worked, I worked in state government and I was the deputy governor, not like deputy mayor for their seven. There was one, me, and I oversaw the state's operation, legislation, budget, policy, and communication. So pretty much the whole deal. And then I worked in the federal government working for Chuck as his communications director. So I've worked in federal, state, and local, executive branch, legislative branch. I've run campaigns. I'm a lawyer. So I kind of understand the judiciary to some extent. And the thing that I took away overall is every policy output is the result of a political input. Every politician makes every decision solely based on reelection and nothing else. And because re-election really is determined in the primary, not in the general, we're talking typically 10 to 15% of voters who are typically either the furthest left-wing, the furthest right-wing, or a bunch of of special interests, which gives us one of two outcomes. Both are bad. One is the dysfunction we see in D.C. Or two would be just really one side of government, whether it's the city of San Francisco or the state of Texas, whichever side. You know, to me, neither of those are good. Um, And so if you're a politician – You're just thinking about, okay, those 10 to 15 percent, what do they care about? And all of your actions are dedicated towards just placating them. So, Mike Janaris is a really great example of this, I think. When Amazon wanted to build their headquarters in Queens, we're talking about 40,000 good jobs. um, Janaris is a very smart man. It's not like he didn't understand the tangible economic benefits. And by the way, of the billions of dollars in tax giveaways, almost all of them were as of right. That every single business – if you and I started a company tomorrow and we met the criteria, we'd be entitled to those tax benefits, right?
0: So so listeners definitely know about the Amazon deal. And they know where that ended up. They know that there's suddenly a, a red coast in Queens. Yep. But, but just for a second, introduce Generis because he, he is a very conventional politician who yeah. takes a very interesting journey.
1: Right. So Generis starts off uh, kind of white, ethnic, very smart, kind of a little more centrist-ish than nothing else. And then sees AOC get elected in the neighboring district and and takes a hard – maybe his his turn left came even before that, but takes a hard turn left and becomes Mr. DSA, Mr. Progressive. And then when the Amazon uh, headquarters campaign starts, if you looked at the polling in the city overall and the polling in the district overall, it was wildly in support – But but Janaris, who's a real smart dude, understood that that a ten percent of people that might vote in his next primary, if he had a left wing challenger, hated Amazon, and therefore solely for the purpose of his own reelection, supporting Amazon would have been terrible. I don't know if it was suicidal, but it certainly would have made his life a lot harder. And you saw that with with Ron Kim, with Jimmy Van Bramer, with AOC. And uh, as a result, basically, Denarius picked one job, his own, over 40,000 jobs. And then next year, COVID COVID happened, and we lost half a million jobs. So we really could have used those jobs. So point being, um, they're only focused on who is voting in their primary. And in my experience, and I've run tons of campaigns aimed at changing legislation or regulations or whatever else, if they think that doing what you want can help them win their next primary, they'll work with you. If they think that not doing what you want could cost them their next primary, they'll work with you. And if they don't think either thing comes to play, you don't matter.
0: It's funny you bring up the Amazon deal because I thought about that reading, obvious in hindsight, in a somewhat different fashion as Firewall is working to court
1: yes, three mayors in yes, three yes. seconds. It was not unintentional. Yes. Well, well, talk about that for a bit. So, so, the, so the the, camp, the book, uh, I should take a step back. Is about a campaign to legalize flying cars in New York, Los Angeles, and Austin. On one side, it's Flight Deck, the flying car startup, and uh, their vicious political consultants. And on the other side is Uber, the Audubon Society, the transit workers, the socialists, and the Russian mob. And you know, they've the the, the political consultants, obviously based on on me and, and my firm. Um, you know, have this very uphill task. Uh, Of legalizing this product even though they can't really prove that it works or that it safely flies and you've got all kinds of political opposition. And so it's like, well, how do we despite all of that still make this thing work? And so one of the things that I drew inspiration from was the Amazon HQ uh, competition where they basically pitted cities against each other. And as a result, cities were offering all kinds of things that maybe they shouldn't have, but simply because now it became, I just want to win the competition, um, that became the driving force. And so Firewall, similarly in the book, kind of uses that notion of competition to drive the three cities.
0: So you're just a couple years older than me. This may be significant here. Uh, So the movie Kids, I saw that when it came out. I knew a bunch of those kids. And I I remember weaving and being like a, a... this is this is nonsense in some ways. And then stepping back and pornographic nonsense. Uh, Larry Clark plainly had an erection the entire time he was yes. filming it. Um, and then stepping back and thinking about the events in the movie and being like, uh, wait, pretty much every single thing there has happened to somebody I know yep. or to me. Yep. It just didn't all happen in a couple of days. Right. And similarly, I am curious and obvious in hindsight – because there's a lot of a lot of you in there, uh, although the consultant Nick, who is you, um, he, you know, he has other issues, and he ends up yeah, in a bad place. So the,
1: my mom was like, "Why does the character based on you have to be in trouble?" And I'm like, "Because that makes an interesting book."
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but what what is there anything in the book that you don't have a, some direct parallel to in your own career or experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, not not a ton, right? I mean, look, I'm not an engineer. So the, there's a character Yevgeny Kolnikov, who's the chief engineer for Flight Deck, who's a little bit of the moral compass of the book in that. He uh, very much wants the company to succeed. He wants a stock option to be worth a lot of money. He's an immigrant from Estonia and wants to be a big shot back home. But at the same time, does not want to put people in a flying car that can't safely fly. Um, and so I have no engineering. I don't know how to code. I don't know how to program. Um, but I invest in startups all day, and they're all effectively populated with engineers. So that's probably the most – tenuous link I had, but if you look at the other main characters, you know, Nick and then Lisa Lim, his protege, are political consultants. Um, Susan Howard's a tech founder. Um, you got two FBI agents of which I haven't done that, but A, I've worked in government. B, I have testified between grand juries and trials in five different corruption trials. So I have spent more than enough time for my liking with FBI agents. Um, and while I don't know Victor Villanova, who's the Russian mob boss and taxi medallion owner, while well, I don't luckily know anyone with the Russian mob, all of the years I spent working on Uber has, you know, made me very well acquainted with how that system works.
0: And and coming up in Southern Brooklyn, but uh, yeah, one other character in the book I should mention who, who's this very amusing void in the book, uh, Carol.
1: Yep, she is uh, Susan's executive coach. So Susan is this archetype. It's probably the most stereotypical typical character in the book actually. She is this, as type A of a founder as you can get um, and it is, she is hell or high water going to make this company succeed um, and it's, it's not even because she's trying to rise out of poverty or middle class. She's a billionaire. Her mom was the parking lot king of Reno and then expanded from the parking lot king of the US and she wants to prove that she can make it on her own and do it too. So she stops at nothing to kind of raise money and get this product out there no matter what the cost might be human or otherwise. Um, but she has this mystical um, executive coach that she's constantly quoting and everyone's like well if we could just get to Carol then maybe we can get Susan to do the right thing Um, and Carol is always elusive she's either like advising the Joint Chiefs of Staff or taking her dog to another audition or there's always some ridiculous reason why Carol's not available um but yeah there's there's actually sort of three uh two in the book and then now that i'm running the tv show a third kind of elusive so reverend sharpton uh who has a blurb um in this book uh we
0: talked about him recording the podcast this morning as he is in washington on the noble quest to keep uh menthol, menthol cigarettes yes. legal
1: so we we have word that's are not following that but um but i do know rev pretty well and and we're friends and um I thought it'd be fun to throw him in the campaign is this like mystical endorsement. Like, oh, I heard you guys have Sharpton. We're working on it. Not yet. Um, and it's just constantly throughout the book and then it just pops back up. And then of course, without giving too much away in the last scene, both Carol and Sharpton emerge, and materialized all of a sudden. Um, and then uh, there's a TV show version that I'm working on right now. And I created a kind of called Sparrow, which is a competitor flight deck. But again, you never see Sparrow. They're just sort of this looming presence that gets talked about in panic tones and board meetings and investor calls and things like that.
0: So they're bird lovers, protesters who show up. Um, one, one particularly Shapely One, who I think I might know the actual New York analog of. Okay. It's a very fun, colorful book in all of these ways, but it has its own origin story. I heard a little about from you, which is interesting. Speaking of being the intersection of politics and tech and books and all that, do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure.
1: So Steven Soderbergh is, as most people probably know, a really famous movie producer He's made, Traffic and Aaron Brockovich, Ocean's Eleven, and all kinds of stuff, won a bunch of Academy Awards. And you know how celebrities like to buy liquor companies? So Steven bought a Bolivian brandy company, And he needed uh, what ultimately amounts to a federal rule change to be able to import and sell his product in the way he wanted to sell it because importation is a regulatory issue, alcohol is a regulatory issue, and then Bolivia is a communist country that we don't really deal much with. So between the three, he had to get an actual change through the Treasury Department, came to me, we got introduced through a mutual friend, and we ended up running this campaign and, and winning. We got the rule changed. And uh, Stephen, along the way, I, I handed him a copy of my book, The Fixer, which came out a couple of years ago and said, hey, I'd just love your opinion on this. I think it was out in galley form at that point. And he said, okay, I'm flying to London tonight. I'll read it on the plane. I'll send you a note. Wake up the next morning and the note is, let's make this a TV show. So I'm like, wow, it's amazing. A TV show with Steven Soderbergh. And so I started thinking about like, well, what would be a fun fictionalized version of, of The Fixer? Um, and I knew it had to be a campaign. So that part was easy. It was, what would it be a campaign about? Settled on flying cars. And the first thing I did actually was I wrote a campaign plan for how to legalize flying cars like I would if there was a real client involved. But just to see what it would look like, Stephen liked the idea, Uh, wrote the pilot. We worked on that together. I wrote the next nine episodes. And then our big pitch meeting was with Apple TV on March 10th, 2020. Of course, that went nowhere. Never happened. Uh, by the time the pandemic was over, Stephen had moved on to other stuff. But I really liked the characters I created and the story. I thought it was fun, and I was like, you know what? Let me see if I can turn this into a novel. And it was a long, hard process because uh, writing a novel is much harder now. But I've I've written three books. Another book coming out next year that's nonfiction. So of the three books I've written now, the fiction was the hardest by by far. Um, so, uh, and I figured, okay, you know what? I was able to do something with this. And then I, so I sent Stephen the, the book before it came out and he said, all right, let's go do it. And so now we're back at it. So uh, yeah, I spent the weekend working on a on a script Bible and uh, I've written the first three episodes and um, got so I'm actually going to LA tomorrow for some book stuff. And it was like a kind of a bucket list thing. I rented a, a little bungalow at the Chateau Marmont. And my plan was to sit by the pool and write a TV show at the Chateau Barmont, just because it's like one of those like kind of bucket list type things to do. Now, whether the show ever makes the air, who knows? I think probably not. Most of the stuff doesn't end up succeeding. But um, yeah, it was a fun way to get this going and, and if it ever happens, it'd be awesome.
0: So closing note here, we will not talk about how many cows were were not harmed in the production of this book. <laughs> but uh for listeners who are intrigued might want to uh, read this yeah tell them what they uh what they should know and look a, a lot of this book obviously is about the uh the challenge of these circumstances some of the contortions that nick goes through as he gets yeah. deeper and deeper in are sort of brilliant and then uh, the mayor and other people trying to flip them back on him you've been in this business for a long time how yeah. much of this is the uh i mean the challenge? a
1: lot of this is either stuff that I've done tactics we've done in campaigns, ideas we tried, or things that are a little too crazy, but I've certainly thought about them. Like, why can't we do this? And sometimes the answer is because it's fucking crazy. but, uh, and by the way, we still then do it sometimes, but sometimes we don't. And so I, I don't give it away, but there's like one move that Nick makes that is totally insane, but does turn the book on its head uh, as a result, and it involves the reporter. Um, and there's uh, the New York
0: Post in here, speaking of that reporter, yes. New York One, there's a Daily Beast mentioned. This was very much my little world.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's multiple press conferences, there's a couple of inside City Hall scenes. Look. If you're taking the time to listen to this podcast, you are clearly really interested in New York politics. Um, this in many ways is a New York political book uh, through and through. Uh, I have worked in and around and up and down New York politics for a long time. Um, and so look, is it, uh, it going to change your life? No. Am I going to win a National Book Award? No. But will you find it entertaining? Yes. And will it maybe shed a perspective on kind of how and why people in politics and in tech make the decisions they make? Yeah, I think it does.
0: Bradley, thank you for uh, coming on, taking Bradley. the time. Yeah. Uh, the book is obvious in hindsight. It's out now, uh, all around, or you can come to P&T Knitwear on the Yeah, yeah.
1: We've got – so you can order on Amazon. It's available on Kindle now. It's available on Audible now. Um, we decided because I own this you know, money-losing uh, independent bookstore on the Lower East Side that we would do kind of an indie first thing. So the book is available at different indie bookstores in, in different cities um, just in the indie bookstores in the next few weeks. And then November 28th, it becomes available everywhere.
0: F-A-Q. FAQ. FAQ NYC is part of the City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting journalism that serves the people in New York. Here at the city, we are in the middle of our year-end fundraising campaign. If you enjoy listening to FAQ, you can support us by giving a monthly recurring donation at the slash give. If you already have a monthly donation set up, want to make a special one time gift, same thing, thecity.nyc slash give. As ever, all our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc, and the pod also receives support from where we're recording PNT Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side with the podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. We're a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists and are affiliated with the Colin Powell School of CUNY City College where Professor Christina Greer is one of the Moynihan Public Scholars Inaugural Fellows. Our host this episode was me, Harry Siegel. I'm also the executive producer. Our engineer, as ever, is Adam Kamara. A special thank you to our guest, Bradley Tusk. The book is obvious in hindsight. It's a novel. It's fun. And a special thank you to you, listener, for joining us making it this far. Be kind. Be cool. We'll be back soon with more. Goodbye.